All right. Well, today we come to week five in our study of last things, our study of eschatology. Week one, we learned how to read the Bible, specifically prophecy-related passages. Week two, we looked at uh, some passages which are commonly used to talk about the so-called rapture. And we saw that those Bible passages are actually just talking about the resurrection of believers from the dead at, at the last day when Christ returns for them. Week three, we saw that the millennium is uh, a figurative way of uh, talking about Christ's reign now from Revelation chapter 20. That the, the thousand years are the current reign of Christ from heaven where departed saints go to reign with Christ while we wait for him to return. Okay, so that's currently happening. He is reigning now. And then last week we saw that even though he is reigning, we still live in this present evil age. And the tribulation is also referring to a current reality. We're not waiting for a particular seven-year tribulation after Christ returns halfway to rapture us in a secret rapture, and then a tribulation happens. That's not what we're waiting for. The tribulations are part of the Christian life. Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And, and then we also saw that there's evidence in the Bible that those, those common tribulations whether through persecution or harassment uh, or um, uh, other common uh, problems in the Christian faith, will intensify into what is sometimes called a great tribulation right before Christ comes. So we don't have time markers on these things in the Bible. We don't know when that great tribulation starts and ends. We, we certainly don't know when Christ will return, but that he can return at any moment. Christ can return. His return is imminent. He can return at any moment. And so we have to be careful about speaking with a certain black and white certainty about certainly the timing of these kinds of things when it comes to end, the end times. And even in some, some ways about uh, the nature of them. I think it's hard to say exactly what is the nature of the Great Tribulation and when does it start. Because as soon as we start saying something with certainty about the Great Tribulation, then we're getting awfully close to trying to time when Christ is going to return. And we have to be really clear that we do not know that. Um, Jesus says that plain as day. Today, we're turning to the topic of the Antichrist. The Antichrist is a topic that shares some uh, commonalities, some overlap with the Tribulation. Um, in that there is something to this doctrine, the idea of Antichrist, that affects us now, just like the tribulation. And there is something to the doctrine of the Antichrist that will ramp up in a more, uh, in a, in a more intensified version right before the end. So I think that we can talk in terms of some overlap with the tribulation. Now, um, before we get into the, the three points that we're going to look at today and open scripture together, Kim Riddlebarger has written this great book called The Man of Sin, and he's also the one, I've been using his, his materials on this primarily, for both his book called A Case for Amillennialism, which talks, it's got great stuff in there about how to read prophecy and the nature of the kingdom of God and what we mean by the millennium and things like that. But he devoted one full book just to the topic of, of the Antichrist. And here's something very interesting that he points out. He says, Many people are surprised to learn that the word Antichrist appears only in John's epistles and is never mentioned in the book of Revelation. 
the Antichrist is never called by name in the book of Revelation. Now, if you are out there watching movies about this kind of thing, you'd think that the book of Revelation is only about the Antichrist. Um, Now, I'm going to argue today that the Antichrist figure is present in the book of Revelation. But this kind of shocking fact about that word, Antichrist, I think helps us, it's, it's got to help us so, be sober-minded as we approach this topic, that there's some, some surprising things about the Antichrist, or Antichrist more generally, in Scripture. And um, the main thing is that the word only appears in two of John's letters, 1 John and 2 John. It's the only place where you're going to find that word. Um, let, let's go ahead and just, we'll open God's word together. We're going to look first at the idea that there are many antichrists. This is actually far clearer in Scripture than the possibility of there being one single antichrist to come. And we'll get to that in a minute. But the clearer teaching here from Scripture is that there are many antichrists. Let's uh, figure out what, what we're actually saying when we confess that. Uh, turn with me to First John. We're going to look at all the uses of Antichrist in First and Second John. First John chapter two, verses eighteen through twenty-five. And what I'm going to do is read these passages where the term Antichrist is used, and then I'm going to make some observations afterwards. So first, we're looking at First John, chapter two, verses eighteen. Through 25. John says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they, are not, that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. That's the first mention of Antichrist, a couple of times there. Let's uh, flip over together to chapter 4 of the same letter. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Uh, John continues and he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. 
Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And now turn over uh, to Second John, just a couple pages. Second John here, which uh, word for word, I believe, is the shortest book in the whole Bible. This very short letter that he sent. And we're looking at verses 7 through 11. And John says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. All right. Now, uh, there are three points that I would like to make from what we've just read in these paragraphs concerning the Antichrist. And the first is that we are in the end times. We are in the end times. We are not, again, we're not trying to figure out, has it gotten bad enough in the Middle East to say now we're in the end times? That's not, you know, that's not, that's not the timeline we're working with. We are in the end times. John said they were already in the end times. It was 2,000 years ago. Okay, now how do we know this? Because he says um, in verse 18 of 1 John, many antichrists have come, therefore... We know that it is the last hour. That phrase, last hour, or end times, or last things, the the New Testament is basically using these phrases synonymously. It's the last hour, which is one reason why we have to be confident that Christ could come at any moment. We are in the last hour. We've been, this is an extremely long hour, at least 2,000 years, okay? And we're in it. And he's, John says this on the basis of something that is completely evident to him. What is the evident thing to him? It's that antichrists have come. Verse 18, again, many antichrists have come, therefore we know it is the last hour. So he's not wondering if antichrists have come. That's what he's already confident about. It's, it's evident. It's on the basis of that that he says we are in the last hour. Okay? So we're in the end times. And uh, he can say that because he sees that antichrists have already come. The second thing to point out is that there are many antichrists. We'll notice here kind of uh, shockingly, if you're unfamiliar with this doctrine, that uh, most of the phrases we have looked at is talking about antichrists in the plural, or if it talks about a singular antichrist, it's talking about someone generally. The, the person who does or says this is the Antichrist. And many of those types of people are in the world. So number two, there are many Antichrists.
And third, and most importantly, Antichrist has to do with false teaching. Antichrist has to do with false teaching. It is related to a, it's actually a particular heresy that we're going to see here. these written down here for us. Um, okay, survey this with me again. Back in, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 22, you, you'll see here in this paragraph that John is saying, you, act, you know the truth. He talks a lot about the truth. Then he says in verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. That's a false teaching. To say that Jesus Christ has not come and that he's not been sent by the Father. So it is a, if we're using theological terms here, this is a Christological heresy. That if you hold to it, makes you Antichrist. Okay, so, uh, well, I'm going to hold my tongue. All right, uh, chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. This, it's going to clarify here even more specifically what this particular heresy is. Uh, what does it mean? So we just saw in chapter 1, verse 22, if you deny that Jesus Christ is the Son of the Father, or you, den- you deny that Jesus Christ has come, um, that makes you antichrist. What does it mean to deny or to confess Christ? Uh, chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 says, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Okay, so you have to confess. If you deny this truth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and he is from the Father, if you deny that, you are Antichrist. That's John's teaching. He's identifying those who departed from them, from their midst. So there were professing Christians in these churches who nevertheless denied this doctrine about Jesus Christ, and they left. And John said, uh, their leaving clarifies to us that they were not actually one of us. They didn't, they didn't confess what you must confess. This is a side note here, but doctrine matters. This is a doctrine. This is a theological truth that you must hold to. And John says, you don't hold to this, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. So if you... Man, you know, people want to say doctrine divides. Yes, it does. It divides believers from unbelievers. And uh, we don't want to wield doctrine in unkind ways, but we also don't want to say that doctrine doesn't matter. John says it is a marker. of the, If you hold to truth, it is a marker of you being a, a true member of the Christian faith or not. Okay, Second uh, John, again, back in Second John chap- chapter, verse 7, I mean... Another clarification. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, uh, they are deceivers and the Antichrist. So you see this back and forth that John is talking about. He says to those who are in the church, you know the truth, but there are those who are deceivers, and the deceivers left. And what they were deceiving people about and what they were themselves deceived about was Christ. They were not willing to affirm that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that the Son of the Father has come down from heaven, and that uh, we know the Father through him. They've, de- they've denied this central teaching, and John calls those who do that deceivers and antichrist. Now, our first findings. 
Because we're going to look at two characteristics in this, this first section where we're looking at many antichrists. We're looking at two characteristics of antichrist, okay? What we've seen so far in John's teaching is that antichrist, the characteristic of antichrist is false teaching. That's the first characteristic. So this is the main thing we want to point out. John has in mind a particular false teaching, a particular heresy. But if we want to speak kind of generally and theologically, to be antichrist has to do with the deceitfulness of heresy and of false teaching. That's one characteristic. Um, And then we also, I think, more specifically, we want to say that this is even clearer a label to put on those who teach heresy and who teach false doctrine. Because John, interestingly here, is talking about how those uh, who are in the church, they don't, he's speaking hyperbolically. He does this several times in his letter. But he says to these Christians, you don't actually need someone to teach you the truth because you already know it. Uh, The problem implied here is that there were those teaching deceit, this deceit, the false teaching, and they departed. So I I think that we can... um, that we can say that there's an even sterner way to apply this label, and it is to apply it to those who are not just holding to this teaching, although that's true too, but those especially who are teaching it and leading others astray. So first characteristic of Antichrist is false teaching. Now let's look at a second characteristic of Antichrist. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. Now as you're turning there, this is one of those, I thought, that, I thought this lesson was going to be actually one of the simpler ones. It's actually one of the harder ones to teach on because there's so much confusion out there about Antichrist. There's a lot of passages we could look at, a lot, way more than I thought. And because what we're about to look at here, we just don't, we don't we're not doing this big in-depth series. And so I can't argue extensively for you right now that one of the figures that we're looking at in this chapter can be equated with Antichrist. I can't argue that thoroughly. What I can tell you is that the images used in this chapter that we're about to read are filled with Old Testament imagery, specifically from the prophet Daniel. Specifically from the prophet Daniel. The, the prophecy that Daniel received, the visions that he saw throughout that book, many of those visions have to do with beasts. They have to do with beasts. And it is, uh, it's held by many, especially Reformed um, interpreters, but also non-Reformed interpreters, that these beasts, and particularly one, is related to the Antichrist. Okay, there's a doctrinal relationship here, so that we can, we can find another characteristic of Antichrist by looking at this passage. Okay, is that clear enough? Uh, can't do a, a long argumentation for it. But I think, I, think you'll, I think you'll be convinced and you'll see what I mean here. We're going to look at uh, Re- Revelation 13. Um, I'm going to read verses 11 through 18. But the context of this passage is that there is a dragon who is identified as Satan in Revelation. And then there's a first beast who comes from the sea. That's in uh, verses 1 through 10. A first beast who comes from the sea, and there is a second beast who comes from the earth. We have a dragon, 
a first beast and a second beast. Now we are reading Revelation. Where are we? We are in prophecy and we are in particularly apocalyptic prophecy. So these are metaphors and images being used to, to talk about uh, true things, r- real things. The dragon, again, is identified specifically in the book of Revelation as that ancient serpent, the devil, and Satan. <laughs> okay, so it's plain as day. Dragon is Satan. Now we have a question here about who's the first beast, who's the second beast. Um, the first beast is sent out of the sea write this, out of the sea to get people to worship the dragon. That's his main goal. And, uh, and then the passage we're going to read primarily has to do with the second beast. And the second beast is also trying to get the world to worship the dragon and the first beast. So there are many interpreters who have called the, these three figures the unholy trinity, that John is on purpose talking about these three who are trying to get the worship of, of the people of the world as a, a corrupted Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and uh, they are empowering, they are empowered by the dragon, and they are trying to lead worshipers back to the dragon. Okay? Uh, that's what's going on in chapter 13. It's not the only place in Revelation where these three figures show up. But it's, it's an important one for our purposes of thinking about Antichrist. Uh, all right, let's read Revelation 13, verses 11 through 18. Again, this is the Apostle John. He's seeing apocalyptic visions. And he says, Then I saw another beast, so we're talking about the second beast, rising out of the earth. Write that one down too. Both the sea and the earth. Beasts coming out of the sea and the earth. Right out of Daniel. Right out of Daniel. Also out of Job, by the way. Leviathan's the beast out of the sea, and Behemoth is the beast out of the earth. Interesting. Uh, Both are satanic uh, characters. Um, All right. I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Horns, I'll just pause here. Horns are symbols of authority and sometimes kingship. He is posing like the lamb. But he speaks like a dragon. Speaks like a dragon. Okay? See what's going on here? He is posing like he's Christ and like he speaks for Christ. But what comes out of his mouth is the word of the dragon. He's speaking on behalf of the devil. Verse 12. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound has healed. Uh, It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those, deceives, deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. That's talking about something that happened to the first beast earlier in the chapter. Uh, Verse 15, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. 
This calls for wisdom, not cleverness, by the way, not science fiction-oriented cleverness. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Oh, dear. Um, we're, we're not going to go in depth about the number, the mark of the beast and the number, except to say that when it says that the number 666 is the number of a man, that is to say that it is, an, it is not an immortal person. It is not somebody who can reach deity. That would be seven, the number of perfection. Throughout the book of Revelation, throughout the Bible, but especially the book of Revelation, seven is the, the picture of completeness. The whole earth is created within the span of six days, and then God glorifies it, so to speak. He crowns this, this uh, kingly world on the seventh day. That's our Sabbath rest that we're waiting for. It means that we will be with God Okay, so the 666 is oriented toward someone who's uh, not deity. It is the number of a man. Yeah. Uh, Also, the number of six is the day that God created man. And thank you. The sixth day is the day that God created man. So if you are, well, we could go really far into this. But it is man-oriented. The number is man-oriented. Are there historical manifestations of this number and of this mark? Yes. Yeah, I think so. Um, But we just... I'm sorry, we don't have time for that today. We can talk more afterwards if you want to. Um, All right, so we've seen this unholy trinity. And uh, the first beast, which is identified in other parts of Revelation with demonic kingdoms. So a lot of interpreters want to say the dragon is Satan. The first beast represents more institutionally kingdoms. And then the second beast is later in Revelation 20 referred to not even as the second beast, but as the prophet, as the false beast. Remember we saw he looks like a lamb, but he speaks like a prophet, speaks like the dragon. Okay, so he's a false prophet. That's another name used for the second beast. And their role, verse 4 and verse 12, is to worship, is to get the people of the world to worship this unholy trinity and especially the dragon. The second beast, again, who is the main one we're looking at here, this false prophet pressures the world to do this through state-sponsored persecution. State-sponsored persecution. This is verses 15 through 18 of Revelation 13. In other words, Satan, the dragon, raises up truly wicked governments, and we're talking truly the instrument of the devil, truly wicked governments, the first beast, and then the rulers of these governments speak on behalf of Satan and are therefore the false prophets of of this demonic uh, trinity. And these, these three, and especially this last one, lead the charge in persecuting the people of God, according to the passage. Okay, uh, for instance, verse 15, those who won't worship the image of the beast are executed, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego back in Daniel. Uh, there's an image set up of a truly demonic, wicked kingdom and its ruler, Nebuchadnezzar. See, this is not, we're not looking only ahead. We're looking back a little bit. 
Nebuchadnezzar is something like the second beast. And there's an image of him created. And he says, bow down to this image or you're going into the furnace. Well, this continues to happen. Um, This is part of what the beast is up to. So verse 15, those who won't worship are put to death. Verses 16 and 18, those who do worship take on a symbol that identifies them with the beast. That's the mark of the beast. So there's something that identifies them. Verse 17, those who refuse this mark are persecuted economically, specifically economically. Uh, Verse 17, no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. So you are uh, the people of God who refuse to bow to this demonic trinity are faced with state-sponsored persecution because these are kingdoms and the rulers of these kingdoms. Now, our findings for this section here. The second characteristic of Antichrist is persecution of God's people. So we have... First characteristic is false teaching. And the second characteristic is persecution. These are things that Antichrist is about. And what we're doing here is what uh, Warfield, the theologian B.B. Warfield, called making a composite image. Now, he actually think, he, he thought you shouldn't do this. He has a different eschatology than amillennialism. He's a great theologian, but we, we would differ, I would differ with him on, on some of these things. And he says uh, that this, when you put these together, you end up with a composite image of a single kind of person um, that we might, we might call antichrist. But again, we have to be aware that when we do that, we're, we're using antichrist as a theological term, not just as a biblical term. But we're saying both of these things are antichrist, anti-Christian things. And uh, that's, at least this is not how John talks about antichrist in his letters. Okay, so we're using this word theologically to talk about both characteristics. That's fine. You can do that kind of thing with the Bible. That's, that's summarizing and systematizing God's Bible. As long as we know what we're doing when we do that. And many good theologians have done this kind of thing. So those are the two characteristics. If you won't worship this truly anti-Christian state or its ruler, then you will face economic ramifications and perhaps death. So the two characteristics here, these are important to recognize as present now in this age because this is a time of tribulation as we've seen in previous weeks we're not merely waiting for these things to take place right at the end of the age or during a certainly not during a seven-year tribulation okay these kinds of things happen and you know we 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 have to exercise wisdom because there's mysterious things about this doctrine but many faithful interpreters of, of different stripes, I'm not only talking about Reformed theologians here, have said, okay, let's look back at history. Um, let's look back at, at, at the Scripture's history. Pharaoh and Egypt certainly kind of uh, ticked these boxes. An anti-Christian nation, you know, anti-God's people nation. And Pharaoh is spoken of 
of, uh, as a, a ruler who is bent on destroying the people of God and getting them not to worship the one true and living God. That's the whole reason God wants to get them out of Egypt. They can come to my holy mountain and worship me. Pharaoh says, no, no. We talked about Nebuchadnezzar, another good example. We have these examples even in the Old Testament. Um, a lot of folks believe that the actual historical figure that John had in mind as he's writing down his visions from Revelation is Nero. Um, in researching the Antichrist, I did not realize how despicable, just the extent to which Nero was a despicable emperor. But uh, stuff that I can't, I can't say in front of a, a room of children, that's for sure. And he was persecuting Christians. And uh, you know what you've heard about his gardens and what you've heard about blaming things on the Christians and then executing them for things they didn't do. That's true, and more. And he kind of uh, represents all this spiritual harlotry that we find in the book of Revelation. And he represents what had become of the Roman Empire at that point, which is that it was beastly. And he, the chief beast of, of that Roman Empire, and uh, depending on when Revelation was written, probably the main emperor in mind that he's thinking of. Okay, so... John says many antichrists have come. And they're in the world. They're, it's happening now. There's all kinds of false teaching out there. Disguised as Christian truth, but it actually teaches you to deny the Father and the Son. That's antichrist. There's plenty of persecution, state-sponsored persecution that goes on in this world. That's antichrist. Anti-Christian. And it is pointing to this, to, to this uh, unholy trinity. Yeah. That's right, yeah. I think that's helpful. There's a spiritual reality that I think we could, we could say is Satan, that we have historical manifestations of them in the Old Testament, and those are types of those who were to come later. And there's a lot of, you could, you could really think very, in some robust ways about uh, things that happened like during the Maccabean War that kind of fit this as well, and then the Roman Empire. Uh, many many uh, good interpreters are comfortable with saying you're certainly getting this kind of thing, not perfectly, but you're getting this kind of thing in Nazi Germany. There, there's good, Kim Riddlebarger himself is comfortable saying, you know, it does seem like when, when a state requires the worship of itself and of its ruler, that there ends up being markers involved, like a swastika, like a certain kind of salute given to, uh, to Adolf Hitler. That kind of thing, Riddlebarger is saying, it's not the last, the, the major ultimate version of Antichrist we're waiting for, but it does, it ticks these, these boxes for us. That there's terrible persecution and false teaching. And Riddlebarger in his book talks about how he showed in one of his Bible study classes, when he was, talk, when he was teaching on Antichrist, he showed them a video of old footage from Nazi Germany of ordinary citizens saying Hitler is savior, Hitler is lord. You know, little kids being taught this in the Hitler youth. It's that kind of thing where you are pressed on threat of death or economic ramifications, you are pressed to deify the state. And that's, that's an antichrist impulse. 
Okay, now, so we need to be looking out for these kinds of things and thinking about the best way to respond as Christians in this age because these things mark the tribulation. They mark the tribulation. So we are to be on our guard. Now, this is by far the longest point that we're making today. It's a little easier, I think, with this background to talk about our second point, which is the Antichrist. I think it is proper to talk not only about many, but also one who is to come. One thing to say here is that there's, there is humble disagreement about this kind of thing. There are perfectly good interpreters who think, mm, I'm not so sure if there is one person we're, looking, we're waiting for. Um, so th- there's, I'm going to make my case here, but there's some mystery. The Bible's not extremely clear about some of this, so we need to have uh, room for disagreement on it. Um, but here's the case. Uh, turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. And we're thinking here, again, about a composite image. And we're not going to see every little detail harmonized perfectly, which is one reason why there's disagreement. Uh, But I think there's enough here to go on. And again, we are in... uh, I gave you the wrong chapter. It's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Chapter 2. I wrote that down. I'm going to read 1 through 12. And uh, we, we saw in 1 Thessalonians a few weeks ago on the topic of the rapture that one of the main things that the, the Christians in Thessalonica are dealing with is uh, misconceptions about the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, and the resurrection. And that's still the case here. So he's trying to comfort them by helping them recognize that the day of the Lord has not come because certain things haven't happened that have to happen first. Okay, so here, here he goes... Uh, In chapter 2, he says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, there's the rapture, (laughs) us being raised from the dead and meeting the Lord in the air, uh, like he says in 1 Thessalonians, our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit, John says, remember, test the spirits, or by a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. To the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, 
in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Like the beast, so we're going to see things that we just saw in 1 John and in Revelation 13. We're going to see both Antichrist and beast together right here. And remember, Antichrist in 1 John is all about false teaching. And the beast of Revelation is about persecuting the saints. Okay? We're going to see, I think, aspects of both in this figure that Paul is talking about. So like the beast of Revelation, uh, who is empowered by Satan, we saw, speaks on behalf of Satan. Paul says in verse 9 that the activity, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. Similar language being used of the beast. Okay, verse uh, 9. Empowered by Satan. So th- this, this man isn't Satan himself. It's not the dragon. I think it's the beast. Somebody who's empowered by Satan. Like John, so that's from Revelation 19, okay? But like John's Antichrist or spirit of Antichrist who are already in the world, Paul says here in verse 7, that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Already many antichrists are in the world, and the spirit of antichrist, and so is the spirit of lawlessness. Both. Already in the world. And yet, there is, in verse 3, is that right, verse 3? Yes. Verse 3, there is a single man of lawlessness who is yet to be revealed. And I don't think there's any reason to take that as anything other than one kind of final, ultimate expression of Antichrist. A man of lawlessness uh, who will apparently incite a rebellion that needs to take place first. He's also referred to as the son of perdition or destruction. Verse 4 says he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. We take this, as Paul talks about it many other times in his letters, as an image of the church. Not an end times reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem. But this man takes his seat in the church. He's a false teacher. He is leading people astray. And he proclaims himself to be God. So yeah, just like John says, there's the spirit of lawlessness is already in the world, but also there is a man of lawlessness who is to come. In other words, it really seems like Paul envisions one single ramped up expression of all the stuff we've been looking at right at the end, and then the Lord returns. Which is why there's overlap here in this teaching between tribulation and the great tribulation. There's tribulation. We're in it now. It's going to get ratcheted up right before the end. Similarly here, spirit of Antichrist is at work in this age of tribulation. And I think it's, I think it's biblical to say it'll get ratcheted up and a particular man will be revealed. Um, who is it and how will we know? Riddlebarger says it, I think, best. He says, we'll know when it happens. Um, so we need to be really careful about saying this person or this person or this person. If it seems like somebody is checking all these boxes, but the Lord has not come yet, then it's one more expression in this age of Antichrist without being the, the ultimate one. Why do we teach that Christ can come at any time if this has not yet 
because we believe in the tension of the already and the not yet, which is the only thing that settles that tension in the, the Old Testament prophecies, the tension, that same tension in the Olivet Discourse, where it sounds like Jesus is saying it's going to happen in this age, but also all these other things have to happen first. Um, similarly, attention here. You brought this up, I think, last week, where it's like, does, did Paul have, was this apostolic knowledge that he knew that this rebellion and this Antichrist had to come first? Or is this something that's in the scriptures we just, and he's just drawing it out? I think it's probably apostolic revelation that Paul is being given as a way of comforting the, the church in Thessalonica. He's being given revelation to say, calm down. You know, your loved ones who are dead in the ground didn't miss the day of the Lord, and you haven't missed it either. Uh, how do I know? Because this man of lawlessness hasn't come back yet. Here, he hasn't, he hasn't come yet. Um, at the end of the day, I think that's the best answer we can give, is to say the tension of the already and the not yet is the only thing that gives us some, some leeway to, to answer that question. Otherwise, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think it's certainly an error. I think it's a terrible error and, and will wreck your spiritual life. If you really hold to it, if you believe, if you deny the imminent return of Christ. I think it's a, te- I think it's a terrible error and uh, you're looking at the wrong stuff. When we're supposed to be focused on Christ, folks who want to deny his imminent return are probably looking at the news too much. All right, why it matters. Uh, the first is that what we've been looking at today matters for our understanding of sanctification. Okay, the design for believers, according to Romans 8, is that we would suffer with him in order that we would be glorified with him. And what this means is that we do not need to be uh, troubled by the idea that Antichrist is in the world and the spirit of Antichrist is in the world or that we could be a part of a great tribulation right before Christ comes where we are faced with a life or death situation. We do not need to fear that. It is part of God's will for us to suffer with Christ in order to be glorified with Christ. Not suffer in terms of his atonement, but to suffer in fellowship with him. If he has died, then we, we die to sin as well. And that, that takes suffering in this world in order that we might be raised with him. So the rise of tribulation and of the Antichrist uh, will be the final, last purifying movement at the end of the age before Christ comes. So this has something to say about our sanctification. Second, it has something to, to say about justice in the final judgment. God's enemies will get their recompense They'll get what they deserve, especially based on what they will do during the tribulation. God is not, does, he never punishes someone unjustly. And uh, just as we see in, in Genesis, um, God tells Abram that the Amorites have not, uh, how does he put it? Yeah, the, exa- exactly. They have not uh, filled up the measure of their iniquities. The Amorites haven't, meaning... I'm going to let them keep sinning. I'm not going to punish them until they earn it. He's just. He's a just God. And when we read the kind of uh, wild and severe punishments of the, of, the, of the enemies of God in the New Testament, we need to trust that they will certainly earn it. Okay? And then lastly, um, it has something to say about our confidence. The Antichrist, we talk about a final end times, ultimate Antichrist, will be truly dreadful. Truly. 
Uh, it will be a terrible, terrible time for the church. But his coming signals that Christ is coming, that he's, right, that he's on the wing, <laughs> that he's, he's about to arrive. And, uh, you know, as terrible as it, as it will be that this man of lawlessness will be manifested, that there will be what seems to be mass apostasy, you know, the rebellion is what Paul says, and that Christians will be dreadfully persecuted. Paul says, then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The sheer glory of Christ's appearance will waylay all antichrist (laughs) and the antichrist. So that's for your confidence as well. No matter what the church faces in this age of tribulation and even in an age of great tribulation, it, it will be done away with by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, place your confidence back in him. Let's, um, let's end our time in prayer. If you'll turn with me back to your handout. On the back page, page two, 